Good afternoon, my friends. Welcome to our continuing series, Live with Certainty, as we learn how to trust. Now, each one of these classes really stands on their own. That's, that is the truth. And you can benefit if you've never joined us before. You can benefit and you can learn some fascinating things today. The truth must be told, though that the, the series is accumulative. And we are very much going to be continuing many of the themes that we've already begun. And this is where it gets kind of interesting. <laughs> if you've been, if you've been um, watching, participating, and you saw today's title, Peace of Mind, you may well have wondered that sounds awfully familiar. Much of the things that we've spoken about have centered on precisely that, peace of mind. What are we going to be learning today in the sense of nurturing and developing betochen that will lead us to have a greater sense of inner calm, inner peace, tranquility, peace of mind? that we haven't yet talked about? It's a good question. It's a good question especially because here we turn a little bit of a corner. Rabbeinu Bechaya, the author of the Shara Betochen, which is part of the larger book called Chovat Halvavot, has essentially been giving us reasons as to why this pursuit is valuable. He says, trusting in Hashem, developing your trust, your betachem, is probably the most valuable thing you'll ever do. It'll impact positively just about every part of your life. And so he, he actually lists out the benefits. And we heard about the first benefit. And then he went through the second benefit. And today we're beginning to look at what he calls the next benefit, or if we're counting, the third arena of benefit. In the very beginning, when we started to list benefits, mayhem amongst them are menuchas nafshei ubetchoyne which translates as peace of mind. Tranquility of soul, if one gets very technical, Really, what is the difference between peace of mind and tranquility of soul? And whereas now he doesn't speak, or begin to speak at least, about menuchat hanefesh, he does allude to menuchat hanefesh just after you turn the page. He says, by achieving what we're going to focus on today, he'll be akin to, and he depicts a particular kind of individual who might have 
Menuchat HaNafesh. So this is a, an important question to talk about, an important subject for us to, to focus on, because, because we are studying the writings, the manuscript, of one of the great Rishonim. The word Rishon in Hebrew means first, or early ones. And the way Torah Jews, and I understand that you might not appreciate this, I, I fully understand that wherever you're coming from, this perhaps is new or different. You may even have difficulty accepting what I'm about to say, but be open-minded before we get to peace of mind. Open-mindedness means try to understand where I as a Torah Jew or a Torah scholar are coming from. We as Torah Jews, when we study Torah, we view the writings of the Rishonim as inspired. Perhaps a lame metaphor is the way American citizens used to view the Founding Fathers, or many of them still do, unless they've been rudely woke cultured. They used to look at these uh, people as inspired. They said they were not ordinary people. They had some kind of, they had some kind of buoyant spirit which maybe uplifted them and gave them a vision and a clarity that maybe people in the next generations didn't have. Now, I don't know if the founding people were actually spiritually inspired. I have no idea. Frankly, it's of no interest to me. But what you should try and understand is that from our perspective, the tradition we have been given, is that up until the great sages, say, in the 17th century, that the manuscripts they produced were produced with what we call Ruach HaKodesh. And Ruach HaKodesh is almost like, if not prophecy, there's an intellectual clairvoyance, an awareness of, of deeper meaning, an intuition that stems from a higher place. And that's how we view the writings of the great Rishonim, without any question. There is no serious Torah Jew who would disagree with this. Rabbeinu Bachaya ibn Pekuda is one of the greatest Rishonim. He produces this stunning manuscript that is still the foundational text on the subject of Betachen. And on the surface, some of it seems repetitive. <laughs> In fact, some of it seems almost simplistic. I can't accept that as a Torah Jew. I, I, that's not the way we study Torah. You may, of course, if you wish, dismiss the writings of Rabbeinu Bachaya or treat it casually. We treat this writing with reverence, and that means we will necessarily treat the subject matter charitably, assuming that there's more than meets the eye. So with that little preface, as we continue now into the next, quote-unquote, benefit, as we move forward into understanding how betochen can positively transform our lives, the key word here is precision. The words, the verbiage, the terminology that plays itself out over the next few sentences are critical to understanding the thesis that's being developed. And before we go forward, I just want to make one little, maybe, disclaimer. We don't have the privilege of studying Rabbeinu Bachai's work in its original. 
at least most of us don't. It was written in a Hebraized Arabic, which is very common for Jewish people living in that part of the world at the time. And this is only rendered into a Hebrew, an easy Hebrew for us to be able to read and understand, by a disciple of Maimonides, whose name is Rabbi Yehuda Ibn Tibbin. And Rabbi Ibn Tibbin also translates, for example, the Book of Mitzvahs, which Maimonides, Rambam, wrote in that Hebraized form of Arabic. Now, Ibn Tibbin is a disciple of Maimonides. He's also a Rishon. But it still puts us at a certain disadvantage. I wish Rabbi Nobachaya had written his work in Hebrew, but he wrote it in the language that he felt would be most effective for the people he was talking to, for the people he was writing for. Having said that, I don't believe that Ibn Tibbin made his own changes or amendations without weighing each word that Abbeinu B'chaya wrote very carefully. And he was a famous translator. He was a person who had not only the ability to simply render words from one language to the next, but he was able to understand the essence and able to transmit it in a syntax that would flow, that would, we believe, remain faithful to its original. And so, with this little preface, if you're still watching, <laughs> please fasten your seatbelts and come with me on what I believe is going to be a fascinating journey into the recesses of our heart, perhaps more so than our mind. And you'll see that the title for today's class is almost euphemistic. We could have easily called it peace of heart. Although, both the heart and the mind are pieces of a greater whole. And ultimately, the terminology peace of mind incorporates both brain as well as heart, emotion as well as intellectual consciousness. Let's proceed. Umehem, says Rabbeinu Bachaya, amongst those benefits, this is the third, shahabayteyach be'elokim, that the one who really, truly trusts in God, and I'm not going to re-explain that if you're joining for the first time, I invite you to listen and to learn the meaning of true trust, real betochen. But building on everything we've learned thus far, the person who develops that quality will find himself brought to a very interesting place. Habiteach be'elekim yivi'ehu bitchoinoi His trust will bring him lefanot et libo me'inyane ha'olam. And here's our first focus on verbiage. Lefanot. It's a verb. The betochen will bring him into a state in which he... So the translation that, if you're following along inside, that's used here in the Kihad edition, which I think is common, is it will bring him to turn. 
as in the Talmudic expression, kol pinot sha'atapona, every turn you make or take. Or as we read in the Torah portion just a couple of weeks ago, Moshe Rabbeinu pleads with Hashem not to give attention or credence to the portion in the communal offering that belongs to the rabble-rousers who seek to lead a mutiny against Moses and dethrone him, as it were. Moshe Rabbeinu says, Don't turn your attention, don't give attention to their offering. So it could mean turn. But I note with interest that the commentary entitled Ne'edar Bakodesh, Adorned in Holiness, he says, Lefanot is panot. And unless I'm missing something, Lehipanot does not mean to turn, but Lehipanot means to empty. Makom panui means an empty space. You'll forgive me, but in the Talmud, Lifnot does not mean to turn, it means to eliminate. Elimination is what it's called in the technical medical textbook. I mean, to empty one's bowels. So there's this notion of emptying. And having betochen will enable a person to empty his heart. My personal preference is to translate this not as turn, but as empty. And I think you'll see why as we continue. To empty his heart from worldly matters. Why is that a good thing? Why would I want to have an empty-hearted person? Does it mean a lack of empathy? Does it mean a lack of care or concern or sensitivity? Most certainly not. When we read about Inyane Ha'olam, we're talking about the things that fill a person's heart and mind not out of desire, but rather out of necessity. Most of the things we do are means to an end rather than an end in and of themselves. A simple example would be the amount of time and wherewithal we spend on our professional or business affairs. The vast majority of people if they were able, wouldn't go to work, wouldn't do the things that they do in order to, quote, make a living. That's because they do these things to provide for themselves, their loved ones, and the people they care about. They do these things to provide the wherewithal, the ability, simply stated, as in to have enough money to take care of one's affairs. So what would happen if somebody would have the money anyway? Or wouldn't have to worry about where will I get the money from? Well, invariably, what would happen then is that the person could devote his or her life to the things they really care about. At least that would be true theoretically. I say theoretically because there are many people who have far more money than they actually need and yet continue to dev dedicate or, if you want to use that word, 
to devote an enormous amount of both time and wherewithal to their business affairs, oftentimes to the detriment, to the detriment of their family life, to the detriment of their relationship with their children, to the detriment of their own inner happiness. So if they have enough money and they're self-employed, why wouldn't they do the things that they want to do? Ah, this is something funny about human nature. In the words of the Talmud, the one who has a hundred intuitively, organically wants two hundred. The person who has two hundred, the Talmud says, he doesn't want three hundred. He wants to double it. The perception of our minds is such that we really want happiness, but the only way we'll get happiness is if we have more money or more stuff. But it's not actually true. It's scientifically proven that more money and more stuff doesn't necessarily make you happy. I'm not going to tell you it necessarily makes you unhappy. It definitely adds anxiety. The Mishnah says that. Mar having more residuals, <laughs> more stuff, Mar gives you more anxieties. Who wants anxiety? And yet, people literally ruin their health and their relationships, making money they don't need to leave it to somebody who doesn't care. This is the folly of life as we know it. Suppose, however, we were able to free ourselves from that, get off the rat race, have a sense of mission, a sense of clarity, a sense of purpose. Suppose we actually knew what we wanted and therefore did something about it, like lived our lives in keeping with those principles. Well, that'd be marvelous. That's kind of the direction we're going to be going here because what Rabbeinu Bachai is going to tell us is that when a person has betochen, it enables him to empty his heart of those worldly matters, the worldly matters that fill a person with anxiety, concern, and worry and disable people from achieving that which they actually want and crave, albeit subconsciously. Let's take this a little bit further. And we'll look carefully at the verbiage because it is going to help us to understand and appreciate where we're going. So if your heart is emptied and therefore directed or turned, they're not mutually exclusive from Anyani Eilam, you can then singularly direct. The word liyached is used. Liyached means to dedicate. In a singular sense, it comes from the word yachid, the one. So you can dedicate yourself, focus exclusively in your heart, yachid to the notion of service. Which service do we speak of? Obviously, we speak of spiritual pursuit. I once sat down with a, a clever fellow, not Jewish, learned, by his own definition, somewhat spiritual. And he said to me, he said to me, Rabbi, just tell me, just answer this question for me. 
Are we spiritual beings having a material experience? Or are we material beings having a spiritual experience? <laughs> I said to him, both and neither. He says, oh, vey. I, I thought I'm going to get a straight answer from you. I said, well, we have to understand that the question isn't, a, isn't posed properly. Are we spiritual beings? The answer is yes. Are we material beings? The answer is yes. Well, which one is it? The answer is both. We are both spiritual beings as well as material beings. We have a consciousness and awareness of our material needs. We have biological needs. It very much defines who we are. If one doesn't have his or her biological or material needs met, they're not going to function very well. Everybody understands that. But at the same time, if one does not have their spiritual needs met, they won't focus or function well either. Because you are not simply a collection of plasma, bone, and sinew. You're a spiritual being. And spiritual beings have spiritual needs. On a very base level, that spiritual need could be something like relationship, affection, care, concern. I matter, you matter, things matter. Meaning, purpose, all of these are inherently needed by human beings for them to function well. If we have no freedom, for example, if we have no ability to engage with others or socialize, if we have no ability to, or no right to think and to ponder and to apprehend and appreciate, but our biological needs are all met, would we be happy? You could lock a person up in a large room, say, the size of this room, it's a fairly large room. You could give that person the ability to control the climate. You could give that person endless amounts of clothes, any wardrobe they like. You could give that person as many beds as they wish to sleep in. You could give the person any kinds of food they, they like and as much of it as they might want. So all their biological needs are met. They're sheltered. They're fed. They have the ability to rest and to sleep. And they can do as they please in this very small, relatively small, sheltered area. What they can't do is engage with anybody else socially because they're isolated. What they can't do is study, read, self-actualize, in an emotional or intellectual way and they can't discover anything new. How happy would people be? Not at all is the easy answer. They'd be absolutely miserable. That would be a miserable existence because we have other needs. We are not just biological creatures. I know animal rights people say that 
locking animals up in a zoo is much the same. Maybe it is. I don't know. I don't know what the needs of an animal are. I, I don't believe that animals have the kinds of spiritual needs that people have. I don't believe we have no evidence that they have sophisticated methods of speaking or that they write compositions or ponder the deeper meaning of life. As we understand it, the animal is capable of intelligently getting what it wants in a clever or sly way and has intuition as to how to survive. That's what we know about. But we haven't yet found animals that master a particular alphabet can play or express themselves in what we would consider music, meaning in a choreographed or very particular way where you can sing the particular song, which is an arrangement of musical figures or rises and rests. We don't know of them having these meaningful relationships other than perhaps a sense of togetherness and a sense of love and attachment, but not in the sophisticated way that we as human beings know it. Now, I don't mean to offend any animal lovers, and, and it's all beautiful. Animals are, you know, they may be a best friend. That's not my point. My point is simply as a, a frame of reference, there's something unique about human beings. Human beings have different kinds of needs. Self-actualization for an animal is not on the same continuum of what we would call self-actualization for a human being. And yet in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, as long as your biology is met, you're almost all the way there to happiness. And that's the first concern has got to be filling those biological needs. That's the baseline of the pyramid. Self-actualization, well, some of us do or don't get there. Most of us, by Maslow's uh, yardstick, probably never really reach self-actualization. But as he would imagine, in a Freudian sense, to be very satisfied, very happy, live very happy lives. Viktor Frankl, of course, pioneers a very different approach to life, man's search for meaning. He believed, and I think correctly, that if a person doesn't have meaning in life, they can't even survive. His evidence is from the things he saw in the concentration camps. People who had none of their biological needs met. And yet, some survived and some didn't. And from his view, it was very clear to him that the people that survived, survived because of the meaning that they had, whether it was perceived meaning or true meaning, but they needed to feel they were living with some kind of meaning. And that's the most important thing in life. It's not a secret that suicide rates are higher than they've ever been since we started keeping records. And I'm not just talking about the coronavirus or the COVID fallout. Even prior to this pandemic disaster, suicide rates were skyrocketing, especially amongst very young people. We have more stuff than people have ever had, probably in history. There's probably never ever in history been a generation more privileged than our generation that didn't have the comforts of life more readily available. Everything from running water to sanitation to easy ways to cook up tasty food and enjoy life. We have more forms of entertainment. We have 
an incredible amount of knowledge at our fingertips. And yet, the one thing that we don't have in abundance is a sense of purpose. We have lots of stuff, but we don't know what to do with it. People are hedonistic, selfish, even mean. They've lost an appreciation for the notion of generosity, for a sensitivity towards giving, the joy and the reward of actually providing something for somebody else instead of always asking what's in it for me. What our generation is missing is meaning. And the results are disasters. People taking their lives. Awful. Because we ignore the needs of the soul entirely. We focus on rights rather than responsibilities. We focus on wealth and accumulation of things instead of accumulating mitzvahs, holy acts. Instead of accumulating physical material wealth, we should be trying to accumulate knowledge and, and spiritual wealth and ability. So Rabbeinu Bachaya talks about what really will give a person that sense of inner satisfaction. What's really going to make us happy? And he says, what would really make us happy is if we live lives of service. Ultimately, as a believing Jew, I'll say that means a life of service to God. The kind of life that God wants us to live and because He's our Creator, and because He knows us best, and because He built us for this purpose, if we will live our lives in keeping with our destiny, with the purpose for our creation, we will find happiness. Whether we have more or less material wealth will not determine our happiness. But whether we fulfill or live lives that are fulfilling or fulfill our purpose and destiny will have everything to do with our happiness. Well. What might prevent that? Simple. Who has time to think about spiritual pursuit when you're so busy making a living or worrying about providing basic needs? <laughs> Once upon a time, it was really hard to live, and survival was not a simple thing. So he says, here's an enormous benefit Betachen is going to afford you. It's going to enable you to empty your heart of all the silly things that usually clog your hard drive or heart drive. And it's going to enable you instead to dedicate yourself, to dedicate your heart to Inyane Aveda. Now, here in the, in the translation, he says, he uses the word dedicate, and I have to say I like that. I, I like that. I like it. It's, it's because, because when something is dedicated, it's dedicated in a singular fashion. That's the meaning of dedicated. If you have uh, what we call a dedicated nurse, then that means that there is a medical orderly, a professional, a man or woman who is going to be dedicated to taking care of this patient. That's actually what the terminology means. If somebody is dedicated towards a particular vocation or pursuit, that means that's what they focus on. 
So we're supposed to dedicate ourselves or commit ourselves or be singular about the pursuit of avoda, spirituality, meaning. The reason that at least once upon a time most people who wanted to do this didn't do it was because they couldn't. Now, let's stop and think for a moment. What do you mean they couldn't? Isn't it more like they, they chose not to? I guess what I mean to say is this. We live in the present. Some, some of us live in the past. That's generally a mistake. We should live in the present. Some of us daydream and live in the future. It's generally a mistake. We should live in the present. We have to make the most of now. And making the most of now means to be focused on now. But why don't people live in the present and focus on now? Why do people keep thinking about what happened in the past or imagining what's going to happen in the future? The human condition. Like we're oftentimes our own worst enemy. <laughs> I might have shared this before, and if I did, you'll forgive me or stop me. There was a fellow named Charles Osgood who used to do a file on CBS radio. And once driving out of New York City, I was listening to CBS radio, and it was a long drive, so I tried to keep my mind, you know, awake, stimulated, and Charles Osgood says this. He says, how come people are happy when they're at work on Friday because they're about to take off for the weekend and they're focusing on the weekend ahead, but they're concerned or anxious on late Sunday afternoon because they're worried about the work week that starts the next morning. He said, wouldn't it make more sense for people to be happy when they're actually on vacation or off and instead to be preoccupied with work when they're actually at work? He said it much better than that. He had this very unique way of presenting things. And his point was, we really have it all wrong. I'm happy today, he said, on Friday, because I'm going to be off tomorrow. I'm unhappy here on Sunday because I'm going to be at, have to be at work or busy on Monday. I'm just living the present. Why, couldn't, why can't people just be happy with, with what they have, with what's in front of them? So if you want to dedicate yourself to Avodat Hashem, go for it. Dedicate yourself. Who's stopping you? But I had to work an hour ago. Okay, that's, that's what was. Now you're, you've arrived. And the answer is that human beings, by nature, our hearts get caught up. We get, we get caught up in the realities of whatever it might be, of things that burden us. And even when we're not involved with it, our heart's still there. So we're not actually free to dedicate ourselves because, because our heart's somewhere else. If you hear people say, my heart's not in it, or his heart wasn't in it, yeah, when your heart's not in it, you're not able to really succeed. But oftentimes, my heart's not in it, not because I don't want to, but 
because I'm somehow disabled. Suppose a person participates in a, a simcha. I don't know, a wedding, a bar, a bat mitzvah of a, of a close relative, but they're having some serious issues in their life. And they have, have anxieties, concerns. And somebody says, well, how did you, how'd you enjoy the simcha? And the person says, well, not, I didn't really enjoy it. Why not? Well, my heart wasn't in it. Why not? Well, because I'd have, you know, problem A and problem B and problem C. Were those problems present when you were actually at? No, they weren't, but, but they were because, because it filled my heart. So I had a heavy heart. I was worried about other things. Other issues kind of grabbed me. And because of that, I wasn't able to open myself to the joy, the celebration, and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, most of us tend to get very, very preoccupied with things that are of importance, or at least things that are of urgency. Far too often, we leave the things that are important aside because we focus on the things that are urgent. Unfortunately, when one urgent issue finishes, the next urgent thing starts. The business we have to do is urgent. Our family is more important. How often do we ignore our family and instead get busy with the things that are urgent, albeit not that important? They're not that important because, guess what? When something of really great importance comes along, you somehow find a way to free yourself of the things that were so urgent. But they're really not as urgent as they seem to be because they're not that important. It's just that right now there's a pressing issue if you choose to give that attention. So our hearts are filled with urgencies of the moment, and as such, we avoid far too often the things that are really important. And oftentimes, that will lead to a great amount of regret. So what's urgent? Well, it's urgent is got to make a living. Suppose I wouldn't feel any urgency. Why wouldn't I feel urgency? Because I have a, an easy way to do it. I can deal with it, focus on it when I need to, but otherwise, it's not urgent. I can deal with it later. Oh, well, that, that would be nice. If I, if I didn't have urgent matters, I could attend to important matters. Precisely, says Rabbeinu Bahaya. The Rebbe once talked about the idea of something, it's a Yiddishism. It's called Hatzlacha in Zman, success in time. There was a Fabrengen, and there was a group of Hasidim who had come from the Holy Land, from Israel, and they were supposed to be going to the airport. But there was a Fabrengen, so they came to the Fabrengen, and the Rebbe noticed that many of them were sneaking furtive looks at their watch, and, you know, are we going to run late here? Is the Rebbe going to end the Fabrengen on time? And the Rebbe told a little story. He said that once he was with the previous Rebbe, his father-in-law, was Chagagula is today. And, and he noticed him 
involved in a, something that required tremendous contemplation, tremendous attention. He didn't say what it was, whether he was penning something or pondering something. But whatever it was, it was a matter of great importance. And he was supposed to head off for the train station. In fact, his ride was already waiting outside. You know, in, uh, in the 1920s, the train station was like the airport is today. And he had to go momentarily. He had minutes, literally. Now, in those minutes before you have to leave on a journey, you're usually not able to dedicate yourself to something that requires a great deal of focus. And here was the Friedrich Rebbe, entirely focused on something that required a tremendous amount of, of inner focus. And he wasn't disturbed by the fact that he would have to leave in a couple of minutes. And the Rebbe was enormously impressed. And he said to his father-in-law, like, wow, such self-control to the point that you can be entirely focused for real. So the Rebbe, the Rebbe said that his father-in-law and his Rebbe told him a story about the great Sephardic sage, Rabbi Shlomo ben Avram ben Adaret, Rashba we call him. Rashba was a, the chief rabbi in his city. I believe he was from Seville in Spain. He was a physician and he saw patients. He was called upon by people from across the region and beyond to answer halachic shilas. We have a fraction of his responsa preserved and they number many books, thousands of responsa that he authored over the course of his lifetime. So he's a rabbi in a city, a judge in the, in, the, in, the, in the ecclesiastical court, a halachic decisor who's called upon from all parts of the world, or at least that part of the world. He was Rosh Hashiva. He had an academy. And he would teach three groups of students, meaning he gave three separate lectures every single day. And he was a practicing physician. And he saw patients wrote prescriptions, everything from diagnostics to applied healing. And he used to take a walk every day. I don't know if it was for a half hour or 20 minutes or 15 minutes or 10 minutes, but he took a walk every day to get some peace of mind. So the Friedrich Rebbe said, even if he could find time for a walk, but how did he even find time for that? Of what help would it be? His mind would be so preoccupied. His mind would be exploding. Would it, would it really help? And so the Friedrich Rebbe said, the Rashba perfected the technique of something called Hatzlacha in Zman, success in time, which means that you have the ability to hyper-focus on this moment to the point that nothing else matters. Whatever will require attention in a moment from now, will get attention in a moment from now. Whatever happened a moment before, right now, is of no relevance. It's not important right now. That's what happened a moment ago. In this frame of time, we're focused on what we need to be focused on now, 100%. When you do that,
you have success with the time that you have. You may have a small amount of time, but you can have success with that amount of time. What Rabbeinu B'chaya is talking about here is very much a technique that leads us to have that kind of Hatzlacha in Zman. But how does one free their minds up? I mean, you, that takes enormous self-control. That takes enormous, enormous self-restraint. Rabbeinu B'chaya is not talking about that kind of self-restraint. But he says, if you work on your betachen, what happens is your heart is emptied of the things that usually fill it. And if your heart's emptied of the things that usually fill it, you can actually dedicate yourself to avodat Hashem. In other words, suppose you could do your work, but not take your work with you. So when you did your work, you focused on your work, and you knew it was going to work, and you didn't have to think about it. So the moment it was over, you simply closed that page, and moved on. You turned the page. It didn't follow you. It didn't concern you. It didn't worry you. <laughs> like the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe once said, that the difference uh, we could see between a person who is employed and a person who owns the business. So the employee can leave at five and not think about the business again until nine the next morning. But the, employee, but the employer, the owner, of the business is always thinking about the business. It comes home with him. It goes to bed with him. It wakes up with him. It's always on his mind. Most people are like that. And if they have worries and if they're concerned about being successful, those worries and anxieties and concerns will kind of fill their hard drive. There won't be room for anything else. They'll go through the motions of spiritual pursuit but they won't really be involved and engaged. And the thing with spiritual pursuit is, if you're not there, if your heart's not in it, it's not really very spiritual. You can go through motions, but you're not really there. Now, all of us understand this. None of what I'm saying is rocket science. And people will have methodologies to clear their hearts and minds and to work at whether it's meditating or contemplating or exercises, breathing exercises that will enable them to forget about their anxieties and focus on the things they want to focus on. But Rabbeinu B'chaya says you don't have to do any of that because if you have betochen, it's already in place. It's what he called a fringe benefit. How so? Well, let's look at the verbiage now. So, the, 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 the interesting thing about the language that he uses is so far it's all been about heart. It's been about heart. He says emptying your heart or turning your heart so that you can dedicate your heart. And that's the difference between emotions and intellect. I can think about conflicting ideas. It's just ideas. They're, they're not really who I am. It may not even interest me. I can think about it when I have to think about it. If I have to solve an equation, I solve the equation. I figured this out. Why? Because I had to. The mother of invention is necessity. So what I need to understand, I understand. I figure out. I learn. I retain. Because, well, because I, I need to. What if I don't need to? <laughs> well, then it's irrelevant to me. Why would I bother even thinking about it? In other words, what stimulates 
real intellectual activity is actually the heart. And it's interesting to note that the heart is the first thing that develops before the brain. The first thing you see when a baby is conceived is not the notion of brain activity, but cardiac activity. First thing we notice is the heart. And invariably, when people want something very badly, it stimulates thought. It's of interest to you. And the more interested you are in it, the more engaged you are in it, well, that's a hard thing. We're talking about you and me now. We're talking about being engaging. We're talking about being committed, being interested in something, being dedicated to something that can't just be aloof or a cerebral activity that's got to be in the heart. But if my heart's elsewhere, if I'm preoccupied, can I really give it attention? Well, if I could unoccupy my heart so that I could dedicate my heart to something else, yes, that would be wonderful. Then I could actually harness and utilize the potential and the opportunities being afforded. I'll come back to this. But Abenu Bachaya says, the Yihiyadoyme, this person whose heart or interests could be directed at the things that he or she really wants would be similar to. He says it would be uh, in the terms of these things, it would be like. It would be like, and here we go from page 13 onto page 14. It would be compared or like. A really interesting thing you'll see in a moment. To Baal Ha'alichimia, to the alchemist. <laughs> okay, before you take my head off, I will explain that soon. Rabbeinu B'chai did not believe in alchemy. Chas v'shalom, it's a silliness. But he's going to use that as a frame. He's going to use it as a metaphor, an example. And the metaphor and the example is that the alchemist has no concerns because he has an easy way to make a living. In the way the uh, annotator of the Kehat book put it, he quotes the Paslecha, kind of. He says, during the Middle Ages when the Chovat Halavavot was written, the idea of alchemy was attractive because it promised immense wealth to anyone successful. Yeah, so it was like your ticket to financial success. If you could only figure out how to magically turn silver into, into gold or iron into silver, boom, you had it made in the shade. You were great then you wouldn't worry about anything. <laughs> that would just be, in today's day and age, the equivalent of winning the lottery or discovering the secret to something that you could actually monetize. So the person who's got it made in the shade financially, he doesn't worry about where his next dollar is coming from. That's easy. If he needs money, he just has a way to get it. So he doesn't think about it. It's not of interest or of concern. When he needs it, he finds it. And not interest. That's not such a good state to be in. Trust fund kids are not generally happier or more well-adjusted or settled. But what it could afford a person, what it could afford a person that is positive is 
And Rebbeinu B'chai talks about three things here. He talks about menuchat nafsho. I'm going to translate that literally, although it's, I think, a lousy translation, and I'll tell you why. Menucha means rest. So rest or tranquility of the soul. What does that even mean? My soul is tranquil. Well, we'll come back to this. Rochav libo literally means breadth of heart or stout-heartedness. And then miut da'agoso means a diminishment or, or a removal even. really means to diminish one's anxiety. Daiga is worry or anxiety. So this would result in tranquility of soul, broad-heartedness, and very, very little worry or little anxiety about his worldly matters. So if a person's heart wouldn't be there, if he wouldn't be concerned about those things, then he could devote that to a higher cause, to, to the pursuit of something greater. Menuchas nafshe. Let's start, let's start from the top. What's Rebbeinu B'chayah talking about here? The notion of menuchas hanefesh. Menucha is peace. As is rendered by the commentary Patlechem, is shoket hara'ayonim. A stilling of ideas. Stilling of ideas. Calming of ideas. What's so good about that? Sounds like a lobotomy. What's so good about calming ideas? Rayon is an idea. Well, if I'm not able to stay focused on something because my mind keeps wandering and I keep worrying about other things, those are also called rayonot. They're not creative ideas. They're just ideas. They're just things that preoccupy and if I'm preoccupied with all kinds of, shall we say, things of lesser meaning, I'm not able to focus on the things of greater meaning. Suppose I could be rid of preoccupations, things that grab my attention, that don't allow me to function. That would be nice. That's called Menuchas HaNefesh. I am at the word nefesh is often translated as soul, but it's, it's actually a lousy translation. Ein doichen nefesh mipnei nefesh means we don't give credence to one life over another. We don't favor one life over another, which in halachic terms means if you have a person that's on, for example, a breathing machine, and they're 85 or 95 years old, and somebody who needs the breathing machine who's only 35 years old, we aren't allowed to kill the person who's 85 to save the life of somebody who's 35 because we figure, well, this guy's at least lived already, and the other life has much more potential, so we're going to choose one life over the other. It's called nefesh in Hebrew. In fact, the origin of this halacha is when you have a situation where a fetus is threatening the life of the mother, so prior to crowning or to its birth, 
we say it's a rodif, it's getting in the way of somebody else's life. And in fact, the mother's life has to be saved by eliminating the fetus. But once the moment of crowning takes place, and now we have a life, a fully viable life, in that case, the Mishnah says, one cannot make a decision, play God as it were, or decide who lives and who dies. That decision is beyond the pale of our ability. It's immoral for us to decide who lives and who dies. Now, if you have to give medical attention to one person, it's probably self-understood that you devote your attention to the person whose life seems to be longer, the person who will probably live for more time. But that's because you actually have to make a choice. You're forced to make a choice. And it doesn't come by taking somebody's life away so that you can give that life to somebody else. That's a big difference. You got one machine, you have to choose who to give it to. That's what we were so worried about in Ontario. That's why people were so concerned with the pandemic because we don't have enough hospital beds in this province. But the notion that we would literally take one life to give another life is beyond the pale from a Torah perspective. So that's called a nefesh. Souls don't die. <laughs> if souls don't die, what does it mean a nefesh is a soul? It clearly is not a good translation. A neshama is a soul. So what's a nefesh? I don't know if we really have a good English word for it. Life or consciousness. In our sense here, we're talking about piece of life. Sounds ridiculous. Doesn't mean anything. But we refer to it as peace of mind. Hence the title of today's class, Peace of Mind. Peace of mind means consciousness. My mind is still calm. I have a calm demeanor. I have, I have a sense of calm and serenity and tranquility about me. I'm at peace. Versus somebody who's anxious, riddled with worry, fear, concerns that don't allow me a moment of peace. I'm robbed of peace. It doesn't mean um, stilling of ideas. It means a stilling of anxieties that otherwise rob the person or the mind of tranquility and peace. So the Pas Lechem says that's the meaning of Menuchas Nefesh. Shokei Tarayoinim. I don't have worries, anxieties. What's Reichav Levav then? He says that's the opposite of Tsaruta Lev. It's the opposite of pain in one's heart or feeling emotionally squeezed, being in a narrow place. The Paslechem very interestingly maintains that these two conditions, what we're calling peace of mind, and what we're calling the luxury or room in the heart, they're actually he says they're, they're not mutually exclusive. They're linked to one another. It's only when the mind is freed of its anxieties, he says, that that the heart opens to receive much wisdom. 
It's almost as if he talks about a, a, a form of heart intelligence, which in modern terminology is understood to be a flow of awareness, understanding, and intuition in which we would experience the ideas in an emotional way. We bring both our hearts and minds into a sense of alignment. So if our mind and our heart are aligned, we're at peace. If I'm uncomfortable, don't feel good about something in my heart, I'm going to have a difficult time wrapping my head around it, so to speak. But if I, if I, if I want to learn and know and experience something, and I'm excited about it, and it makes me feel good, my heart and mind are on the same page. I can get involved. It's not just academia. It's not just something which is objectively so. I'm into it. This is me. I, I self-identify with it. I'm interested in it. It's what fills my mind even when I'm not actually focused on solving a particular problem. Because that's where I am. Now imagine, my friends, if our hearts and our minds could be dedicated to meaning, to purpose, to the things that we actually love and enjoy, to the things that give us a sense of fulfillment, not provide for our biological or technical needs. That's what we're talking about here. That's the meaning of emptying one's heart. That's the meaning of filling one's heart or having space in the heart. And it's really interesting because this, this, uh, this description of what we're calling peace of mind is actually very biblical. The Paslechem says, take a look in the fifth chapter of the book of Kings. Kings 1, Malachim Aleph. In the fifth chapter, we read about King Solomon's greatness. We hear about his power, about his wealth, but perhaps most importantly, we hear about his wisdom. Because as we're going to see in a few minutes, that was his defining feature. There were other powerful kings at the time. There were other wealthy kings, but none were wiser. So yes, King Solomon's kingdom was blessed with a material abundance. He did possess exceptional political strength and capital. But Solomon himself, Shlomo HaMelech himself, is gifted with a rare blend and degree of wisdom. If you take a look in verse 9 of the fifth chapter, the Torah says, the scripture, Navi says, Vayitin elekim chachma lishloima. Hashem gave wisdom to Shlomo. He granted him wisdom. Utavuna harbe, and a great deal of tavuna. We'll translate that as discernment. Ma'id, harbe ma'id. So he granted him wisdom, chachma. He gave him, or granted him, an enormous amount of discernment, or tavuna. And a breadth of heart. And this was kechoyl asher al-sfasayom. That was like the seashore, like the, like the sands of the seashore. What does that mean? What does King Solomon's wisdom have to do 
with his amplitude of heart, with the Reich of Lev. King Solomon isn't known for his emotional excellence. He's known for his wisdom. He's known for his mind. And yet the scripture speaks about Reich of Lev. The Mitzudah's David, a major commentary on the Tanakh, tells us that Reich of Lev is That's what enabled Shlomo HaMelech to have a wide range of interest, to maintain a spectrum, a wide spectrum of different knowledges, different disciplines. In the English the Tanakh of Rabbi Adin Evin of Steinzel, the Steinzel says like, he calls it a breadth of interest. That's how he translates it. And I thought that's interesting. He talks about a, a motivation and a capacity to broaden the horizons of knowledge. And it's like the sand that's on the seashore. What does that mean? What it means is his wisdom covered many areas. Here's how Radak, Rabbi David Kimchi puts it. He says, Choyl, sand, is not a measure. It's a number. In, in, biblical, in the biblical imagination, if you will, when we bring up the, we conjecture or bring up the imagery of sand, we're talking about the, it, the number of grains of sand or the impossibility of counting the numbers of grains of sand. Not about breadth. But he says, Reichav, breadth is about a measure rather than a number. So what does this mean? So Radak says it means that he had a wide-ranging capacity for all kinds of divri chachma, all kinds of different disciplines, <laughs> if you will, to use secular examples, disciplines like mathematics and philosophy, which are, which are so different from one another. One is very technical, or could perhaps be very theoretical, and one is very philosophical. It's just, just different. There's the discipline of understanding history, and there's a discipline of analyzing and understanding human anthropology, and there's a difference between understanding psychology. They're different. Typically, people who are great in an area of the sciences are not necessarily great in the area of HR, human resources, knowing how to motivate people, understanding psychology. But the Radak says, what we're really told here is that the amount of wisdoms or disciplines King Solomon was, was engaged in was like, like, the, like the number of grains in the sand. In other words, like in, in immeasurable amounts of disciplines. And then he finishes off with something which I found so fascinating. He says, our rabbis, and I don't know who he means, if it means the Talmud, but I don't know, maybe it's a measure. He says, he says, they said, they explained that ma choil goder liyam, just as the seashore, if you will, rings or limits or defines the sea. The sea goes till the seashore. They said, this was the wisdom, this was what defined Shlomo. That the point was, his chokhma and his tvuna and his reich lev were kechoil asher al-sfasayom, were his defining hallmarks. That was his seashore, if you will. His defining lines was his wisdom. When we speak of King Solomon, we speak of the wisest of people. That's his hallmark. You know, in his commentary, the Malbim, 
talks about the difference between Chachma and Tevuna, and he says that Chachma is wisdom. It's wisdom. But Tevuna is the ability to analyze, to develop. It's just pretty close to how Hasidus talks about Chachma and Bina. Chachma is intellectual, the creativity or intuition, the, the aha moment, whereas Bina is the ability to analyze that and to develop it from the word Bona. But then he says, Rechav Levov is Ladas. He says, that's when you form an opinion. You come to a conclusion. You render a judgment. <laughs> you really get it. In other words, that's the direction you go. The das is your predisposition. The das is the judgments, the, the kind of conclusions you come to. We're definitely speaking about hard intelligence. Because in the end of the day, what we're speaking about here is what interests you what you really care about. I find it fascinating that until the latter half of the 20th century, nobody even talked about hard intelligence, except Torah, of course. <laughs> you know, it was only during the 1960s and 70s that pioneer psychologists, John and Beatrice Lacey, conducted research that shows that the heart actually communicates with the brain in ways that greatly affect how we perceive and react to the world around us. It's not till 1991 that a pioneer neurocardiologist whose name was Dr. J. Andrew Armour introduces the term heart-brain. He said that the heart possessed, and I quote, a complex intrinsic nervous system that is a brain. And now, of course, we know a great deal more about the heart. Now researchers have come to conclusions and they know things like the heart sends us emotional or intuitive signals to help us govern our lives. The heart directs and aligns many systems in the body so they can function in corollary with each other and harmony with each other. The heart is in constant communication with the brain. The heart's intrinsic brain and nervous system relay information to the brain, creating a two-way communication between heart and brain. Heart makes its own decisions. Sometimes, sometimes what the heart decides, the mind can't really agree to. But in your heart, you just know. People use these expressions. As I mentioned before, the heart starts beating in a fetus long before the brain is formed. We have an emotional brain before we have a rational brain. Children know what they want, and they can think emotionally, but they can't think objectively. They're not really good at problem solving. <laughs> That's something they only learn later on. So it's really clear that there's a great deal of intelligence in the heart, and that if the heart is in it, then the mind will follow. That's exactly what Rabbeinu B'chai is talking about here. And he says, so often people are worried about the urgent things so they can't give attention to the important things. They're not self-actualizing because they're too busy making a living. But imagine you could be an alchemist. <laughs> the term alchemy is actually a, a, of dispute, what it comes from. According to some, it's a Greek term, 
and it's the forerunner of the modern turn, chemistry. Interestingly, the Pas Lechem, he kind of follows that idea. He says that in Latin, chemi or chemistry is what we talk about as like a chemist or chemistry today. But he says Arabic would modify that. The old Arabic modified the beginning of every word with an al. So alchemy was like saying a chemist in today's day and age. There is another school of etymological thought that traces it back to ancient Egypt, not Greece. And it comes from the term dark earth, or Egypt is called the black land versus the red land. Red land was the deserts around it where the soil was red, but in Egypt the rich, fertile soil was black. And this was connected to the power of Egypt to produce enormous amounts of, of sustenance. <laughs> an irrigation system, a very rich soil, and that somehow it seems is linked to the art of black magic or even the manipulating the nature of things. Which kind of sounds very much like alchemy. Anyway, however, however we, 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 we choose to look at the term alchemist, so Ben is very clear about what he means. The who, and that's Hayoidea, the person knows Lahafochakesef Lazov, he knows how to turn silver into gold. Hanachoshas, the, 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 the copper, and bedil, and, and, and iron, lechesef, into silver. Ayadei chachma omaisa. Using his knowledge and using his wherewithal or ability. And the point then is that we're talking about a person who can make himself money whenever he needs it, right? So the person who has betachan is like the person who's got it made in the shade, who has, as it says here in this book, I'm page 14, whose livelihood is secure because he knows how to transform cheap materials into gold and silver. And therefore, he has little to worry about. So then, this person has no urgent matters to worry or concern him. Instead, he can devote his life to the things that are really important. The meaning of life, life like self-actualization which from a Torah perspective means to live a life of commitment to Hashem, of avodah shebelev. Now, it's interesting that in the Marpel and Nefesh, when he describes this phenomenon, he says, Iker bilbul das adam, a person's mind is, is confused or overwhelmed or burdened so that he's not able to study Torah or be involved in avodah. I find it interesting that the Marpel and Nefesh talks about this because Rebbe Nebuchadnezzar doesn't mention anything about study here. He talks about avoda, service. He talks about the things that interest you, the things that are meaningful, which perhaps includes Torah study, but the emphasis is not on the cerebral or intellectual pursuit, but rather the pursuit of meaning. And the reason, he says, is he's doyeg tomid. He's always worried about hamichya. He's always worried about, you know, putting bread on the table, ala kalkola, on providing his livelihood. But as we learned, if a person has betochen, he doesn't worry about those things. He doesn't think about these things. It minimizes all of his angsts, anxieties, and concerns about material matter because he knows that comes from Hashem. Now, a person needs to be motivated. A person needs to have urgency. Sure, he says, his urgency, daigase, is bavidasi, is barach. His urgency is the matters of true importance, the things that really count. 
such as the nature of Rebbeinu B'chaya's opening statement about the power and the benefit of having real betachem. Now he's going to go on to list no less than 10 different areas in which the person who has betochen is superior even to the alchemist. And we'll begin that tomorrow. Join me for the alchemist, the next part of our series. I hope that you found this interesting and uplifting. I hope that it's inspiring you to work harder on your betochen. Because as we develop trust in Hashem, we will have a, a beautiful life filled with peace of mind and the focus on the things that really give us inner satisfaction and bring us true happiness. May we merit the day in which all of the world will have no worries. It's exactly how Maimonides describes the coming of Mashiach. And he says, therefore, naturally, when Mashiach will come, and there'll be an abundance of everything material, people will not focus on anything other than to self-actualize by deepening their relationship with and elevating their consciousness about the knowledge of God. Imagine that. If you have betochen, you can experience an inner redemption, almost a, an environment that's Mashiach-like. The Rebbe was talking about that. The Rebbe was talking about living with Mashiach. Turns out, living with Mashiach really means living with full betochen, trust in Hashem. And when you experience a Mashiach reality in a personal way, it necessarily accelerates the process of universal redemption for us all, but we'll talk about that Bezrat Hashem in the days ahead. Thanks so much for joining. Have a beautiful day.